Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. When you're leading change anywhere, but most especially when you're leading change from the middle, it really drives home the value of a vision. And most especially a clear, concise, and compelling vision, you know, that is motivate, that is understood and motivating the people who you need to help you, but who don't work for you, who work instead in the far-flung corners of design or engineering or manufacturing or in motorsports or any other place. As I say, they don't work for you, but they have a general idea of what you're trying to do. But if you can get specific enough, then they will bring you their ideas and it'll make the strategy I think more interesting, more robust, more real, and more impactful. Hello, I'm Tim Troop-Nooning, and that was John Smith talking about leading change from the middle, and specifically the middle of General Motors, where John had been put in charge of rescuing the Cadillac brand. Once the world's most esteemed luxury car, Cadillac had fallen on hard times by 1997 when John took over. My discussion with John concerns his recently released book, Thin Tales, in which he tells the story of how he and his team set about bringing one of America's most iconic brands back to prominence. John Smith, thank you very much for joining us on Horsepower to Hyperloops. Thanks for having me, Tim. Great to be here. I was excited to get your book, Fintails, about the revitalization of Cadillac, and that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what you were a principal in. That's what this story is, and that happened in the late 90s. But tell me a little bit, before we get into the thumbnail of the book, and then we'll go into some of the more interesting parts of it, your career. What led up to you taking this position in 1997, correct? So I worked for GM for a little over 42 years. I started at the tender age of 17, the Monday after high school graduation. I was a a GMI, now Kettering student, and I had the opportunity to work in the assembly plant in Kansas City uh, the summer before everything started up in my freshman year. So I probably spent, I was an engineer at Kettering. GMI, I used to, I still like to say, but uh, Kettering now for sure. I had a great experience there, both at school and also in the plant, and certainly with a lot of lifelong friends I made uh, during that period of my life. I was probably at the assembly plant in Kansas City for a total of six years. I had a desire to, to go to graduate school sometime in my life. I just decided to go full time. And when I got out of graduate school, I ended up in General Motors' New York Treasurer's Office. The long story there was kind of an accident, but it was a great career move, as it turned out for me, because I met people like Jack Smith early on. And it really just changed the trajectory of my career, got me ready for a variety of different assignments. I worked on all of our joint venture programs with our Japanese partners at one point. I lived and worked in uh, in Europe as part of the GM Europe organization before the wall fell in Berlin in 1989. Had a chance to be on the ground floor of forming up our operations in China from that vantage point. Came back to the U.S., had my first operating assignment as uh, president of Allison. That was a turnaround situation and uh, 
prepared me, I think, pretty well for my next assignment, which was Cadillac, which was the subject of pintails that we're going to talk about here in a moment. So I would, after that, I spent probably ended up my ended up my career uh, running all of our GM's global product planning activities, uh, working for Bob Lutz, and I had pretty significant involvements, uh, obviously, in our bankruptcy and restructuring process there in 2008 and 2009. Retired at the end of 2010, and I've been sitting on uh, for-profit boards here in the last decade. Really enjoyed that. So this book entails the period of time that you were revitalizing, you and your team, revitalizing the Cadillac brand. You've had a long career, and I know some other parts of it that are incredibly exciting. Why did you write this book? What was behind it? I've always thought it was a good story, a bit of an inside baseball account of turning around something. And I, I think those kinds of business stories do interest people, you know, because you're taking something that was failing and turning it into something that is prospering. In Cadillac's case, it was, it's truly one of America's great brands. I mean, it's so deeply embedded in our psyche. 200 songs featuring Cadillac presidents driving them, Elvis driving them outrageous models like the 59 Eldorado that still resonate today. And most importantly, GM's best brand at all times. So I thought it was especially a good story, turnaround story when we were talking about something so aligned with the American spirit like Cadillac and so important to GM like Cadillac. That was one reason. You know, a second reason as I got into writing it, I'll say this plainly, it, it so many people contributed in the in the in the trenches of General Motors to make uh, to helping art and science work and turning around Cadillac for we had a really good run for the better part of a decade as a result of it. And it, it just seems to me that since the bankruptcy, almost everybody commenting on General Motors is from the outside looking in, more negative than positive. You know, and so many people rose to the occasion. And I think this was GM at its best. And there were a lot of people to thank, and I hope I, I did that uh, appropriately in the book. That was a second reason. A third reason is Nancy and I do an awful lot of relief work in Haiti and have been doing that since the earthquake in 2010. And to be honest, I was looking for an opportunity to perhaps raise some funds for that work. We have a nonprofit that we formed, and all the proceeds from the sale of this book are going to go into that nonprofit. Tell me a little bit about when it's out. I think it's out now, right? And where to get it and how and et cetera. Yes, it became available on Amazon. All you have to do is Google Fintails and it's available in hardcover as well as the Kindle ebook version on Amazon and available now. And that's Fintails, T-A-L-E-S. T-A-L-E-S, right. Yes. So to play yes. on words because Cadillac is obviously famous for tail fins. So, John, this is Fintails is clearly a book about revitalizing an iconic American brand, Cadillac. But I think it's a lot more. And, you know, I've talked about this because it's, as you said, an inside baseball look at what's going on. It talks a little bit about some other subjects that are go beyond just the auto industry or any industry. Share with me some of your thoughts about that. I do appreciate that question. I mean, it. This is clearly a book that I think will appeal to auto enthusiasts because it really sort of lays out how I think people think turnarounds are rather formulaic and 
golden and personal events, but it's not. It's filled with people interacting with themselves sometimes and sometimes having different agendas. So there is that. But I also think it's a leadership book. And it's certainly, I tried to apply everything that made sense to me based on my earlier turnaround experience at Alice in Transmission, but also making sort of adjustments for the fact that, you know, Cadillac is not leading change from the top of an organization, which was kind of the case at Allison, but leading change from the middle of an organization, which is a different kettle of fish. And some of my takeaways, I mean, for, for I tried to I tried to reflect on all of this in the very last chapter in the book called In the Rearview Mirror. But when you're leading change anywhere, but most especially when you're leading change from the middle, it really drives home the value of a, a vision. And most especially a clear concise and compelling vision, you know, that is motivate, that is understood and motivating to people who you need to help you, but who don't work for you, who work instead in the far-flung corners of design or engineering or manufacturing or in motorsports or any other place. As I say, they don't work for you, but they have a general idea of what you're trying to do. But if you can get specific enough, then they will bring you their ideas and it'll make the strategy, I think, more interesting, more robust, more real, and more impactful. So I do think there's there's a leadership book. There's also the, there's a whole notion of leading for the middle, I thought, also put a premium you know, on, on working with your team, the people who directly report to you, the people who are your allies but don't and who feel as strongly about, in this case, art and science as I might. The whole notion of being a, a good listener, but being a an empathetic leader, because the other thing that I found is passion, patience, and persistence are vital. You know, because a big organization from whom you have to ask constantly ask for resources to execute, or for resources to be allocated for the execution of the strategy. Yeah, it, it, big organizations are inclined, especially to treat a small volume outfit like that. Like, even though it was GM's best brand, it's small compared to, say, a big animal like Chevrolet. You, you get a lot of no's, you know, and, and the people who work for you, you know, in sales or marketing or whatever, you know, and they're trying to get something done and they might get a no, you know, and and, and their daubers get down and you've got to be right behind them and say, look, Let's sit and talk about this. Let's figure out how we can reapproach this thing. That's where the persistence comes in. But I do, I also think this when you're in a big organization, they hear a lot of pitches. And I do think that passion really matters. I mean, if you're passionate, if not more passionate than anybody else about the opportunity that you think Cadillac has for Cadillac and for GM in the marketplace, you're going to win. You're going to win resource allocation. So I, I think that. All of this I try to reflect on, you know, what made art and science work. I certainly the clear, concise, and compelling nature of the vision, but also passion, patience, and persistence in pursuing its execution. You know, and a variety of other things, you know, having a great team and not a lot of turnover, such that there was commitment and continuity of purpose over an extended period of time. I think this is a good leadership book. You know, that has application, not just for the automobile business, but for anybody leading change. I would say there's a there's also, Tim, a, a third audience that, that occurred to me. I mean, obviously, Cadillac is a consumer brand uh, and one that was failing. 
and we had to sort of construct a, a process to understand uh, where it might have come off the rails and how to get it back on the rails. And uh, there's a fair amount of detail in the book, at least about the process that we use to get to art and science, and then to drop down a level or two of detail as to what it what it should mean to be relevant in today's market. We couldn't very well take try to find the tooling for the 59 Eldorado and start building those again. <laughs> because yeah, as riveting as those cars are, obviously, they wouldn't even pass today's crashworthiness test. And they might just be a little too, they might not actually carry styling values that mattered. But so I think, you know, if you're a, if you're a chief marketing officer someplace or you, you have some other consumer brand that you are wondering it might be teetering a bit in terms of relevance uh, with consumers, I think that audience uh, who've got brand-related responsibilities, even outside the car business, might find it helpful, useful, insightful. And I hope that's true. So, John, to the backstory to Fintails, how did Cadillac and GM, for that matter, go from a dominant market share and robust year-over-year profits to the doldrums 32 years later? I know some of it was the infusion of smaller foreign cars and some of it gas prices, but Cadillac had gone from being iconic to becoming an also-ran in the luxury market by 1997. Well, you know, I think you put your, your your finger on certainly one of the bigger contributors between 1965 and me showing up at Cadillac in early 1997. Uh, the automobile industry changed a lot. It uh, certainly became more global, you know, after the, you know, for the longest time, certainly after World War II, uh, the domestic manufacturers in the U.S. really had the U.S. market all to themselves. But things change as we get into the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, OPEC forms up, gas prices go from being 25 cents a gallon to considerably more, and sometimes there are lines. Japanese establish a beachhead on the West Coast and then over time roll in, across the country. Even the Europeans, who really weren't much of a presence in the mid-60s, find their way gradually You know, with the upmarket, their upmarket models, especially Mercedes and BMW, but they come into the marketplace. So there's a lot of external change that is affecting uh, the competitiveness of the U.S. market. Now, obviously, the run-up in fuel prices changed the mix of the mixed preferences in the market. And all of a sudden, smaller cars, more fuel-efficient cars uh, become attractive, which really wasn't in the mid-60s where any of the domestic makes were. And then, of course, there's certainly some things you know, that each company does within its own powers, right or wrong organizational changes and the like, you know, that can be successful or they can be less successful than anticipated. So by the time you get to the late 90s, uh, quite a bit of change has confronted the industry. Um, GM and the other domestics respond for good or, 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 or for worse to those changes. But Ned, I think in GM's case, it wasn't especially good outcome because by the time you get to the the early 1997 GM share is in the mid 30s. You know, not not over 50 percent. Its net debt ratio. It's now carrying debt on its balance sheet, where it was debt free in the mid 60s. You know, and in Cadillac, and it's I will say it this way. You know, when GM was in 1965, maybe it was going to market in the U.S. with six brands, and by the time you get to um, 1997, it's not six brands. It's seven. Despite a market share that is, 
you know, certainly down fully by a third. And yet the, the company continues to try to go to market with seven. And there'll be an eighth added, you know, within the decade in the form of Hummer and in a way that creating a kind of competitive disadvantage for itself. And when you've got that many brands, you're trying to say grace over in the engineering factory and design. Now, something's got to give. And frankly, the distinctiveness that marked GM's brands in the mid-60s was largely gone by the time you get to the, the to early 1997, affecting all brands, including Cadillac. And Cadillac went from having probably 70% of the luxury car market in 1965 to, to having low teens market share in, in early 1997. Tell me, how did Cadillac land in your lap? Well, I was at Allison Transmission at the time that I was offered the opportunity to take on Cadillac. And as I mentioned earlier, I, because I think I did, you know, Allison was also a turnaround situation, a different kind. By the time that I was in my third year, uh, restructuring was well underway. And um, there were a couple of openings um, up in Detroit uh, uh, in the car division. Uh, leadership roles, one at Oldsmobile, one at Cadillac. And uh, Ron Zarella um, um, was asked to consider me. He and I had a dinner one night, and we talked about those two openings. And I expressed an interest, but really an interest only in Cadillac, because I, I, I really felt I wanted to, to work on GM's best brand. I felt I was equipped to do that, having lived and worked in Europe, where a couple of, of the world's leading luxury brands are at work each and every day. So I had a chance to see them up close and personal. Those would be Mercedes and BMW. And uh, you know, if I was going to take on a new turnaround, uh, turnaround assignment, then I wanted it to be Cadillac. We spent the better part of a year, the first year that I was at Cadillac, figuring out how to get back to Cadillac's historic pedigree, You know where... We called it art and science, but Cadillac for the longest time had been a styling leader. And I want to take just a moment. Styling leader in the sense that it was uniquely expressive. It was totally consistent with that can-do American spirit. It was the most aligned car brand, in my mind, in the late 50s and early 60s with it. And you know, with this expressive, aggressive, forward-looking culture, uh, business culture that is that is America. And I really felt we needed to get back to it. We ended up calling it art. The science part was all about getting back Cadillac back as well to some of its historic technical firsts. I mean, here's a brand that was, you know, among the first with fuel eject injection, active suspensions. You know, the self first self-starter would debut on a Cadillac, right? And first synchronized transmission, the first mass-produced V8, later things like Stabilitrack and Night Vision. That were also sort of Cadillac first. It occupied a role for GM, where new technology that usually always cost more in the beginning would debut at Cadillac, and in time, it would find its way into other brands and in into in, in GM. We'd sort of lost. We had lost those two characteristics uh, of Cadillac in that period from '65 to the mid to late '90s. We just lost those things. And art and science is all about. Getting uh, about getting them back. And on the art part, you have to give huge credit to design staff led by Wayne Cherry at the time, coming up with what was in the late 90s, a very unique, a very expressive, very edgy 
styling for Cadillac that made its first debut on the the first generation CTS, which came out in the fall of 2002. And on the art side, we were very science side, excuse me. We were very specific that we wanted Cadillac to be leaders in technologies that we thought we were that were especially interested interesting to the new generation of electric car buyers. Things like active safety. You know, passive safety in the form of, for example, seat belts. But active safety is all about technologies like Stabilitrack, you know, which allow you to avoid an accident in the first place, not just survive it. And the night vision was one of them, wasn't it? Night vision. Well, night vision. I would. Night vision would be another active safety component. Gives you information to allow you to avoid an accident. Another pillar was all weather control, and most specifically, all wheel drive on things like passenger cars, which was which was hardly seen in the late 90s on, on any vehicle. And then most, and then also infotainment. You know, we saw infotainment today. I mean, that, that's a given in, in every car. But in the late 90s, we were in a, the infancy with cell phones and their interaction with vehicles. That, uh, but we saw that as, as, an, that, uh, as a growing area of interest for uh, luxury car buyers. So we got very specific as as to the formulation of what Cadillac should look like again, you know, what technologies Cadillac should be featuring and leading GM in, including, I would say, alternate proportion. I was going to ask about that because Prius was the only one out with it at that time. Am I correct? They were. And I think this is correct. I think even the early Priuses did not feature you know, the lithium ion battery chemistries that, that are obviously dominating the hybrid electric and, and the, the plug-in hybrid electric and the battery electric vehicles today. But you know, that's another story. You're right. It was early days for alternate propulsion. And I think GM had just concluded, you know, their EV1 experiment, which, by the way, featured lead-acid batteries. And it was also two-passenger. And I would, as a tangent, I would say history is littered with Two passenger executions in the automobile business. So it probably was never destined, almost by definition, to be a high volume. But things like, let's give credit where credit is due, things like EV1, low volume, uh, not many years of production, things like the Volt, uh, which is no longer also in production. Sometimes these experiments, if you will, these low volume experiments are all about accelerating the learning curve in the engineering factory. And I would say in that sense, both those executions, not necessarily big commercial successes, but huge technical advances for General Motors allowing things like the Bolt and certainly now the new introduction of the Cadillac Lyric, you know, the, the new Hummer, the ultimate platform, all of these things are, all these things are enabled by virtue of the learnings that took place with some of those earlier executions. but. Just back to art and science. I mean, it was really all about getting Cadillac back to its roots. And, and we took and the first year to basically sort that out. Well, what is amazing to me, to your earlier point about sort of an inside view of what was going on, art and science is not just a term. Art and science was a paradigm. It was an approach. It was an entire philosophy that you actually sold as an idea, as a way to approach this problem. Am I not correct on that? Then, Yeah. Yes. Before you even developed the car, you developed the car out of art and science, which was itself sold early on. Well, and and at the point of sale, I'll say it this way, 
obviously the art and science strategy requires investment and the people that uh, control those decisions kind of want to see what they're getting. So after working through what we thought was the right and proper and prosperous uh, new positioning for Cadillac under this art and science banner, uh, Wayne Cherry and I uh, presented the strategy uh, to uh, the North American Strategy Board. But what we basically did was illustrated fully. We were inside the GM Design Dome in Warren, Michigan, and the entire, which is a circular affair, and the entire perimeter of the Design Dome was given over to full-size illustrations of what every model in the Cadillac portfolio would look like if we adopt the new art and science form vocabulary, the styling cues, you know, for Cadillac. So they could they could see, we could explain the strategy to them, we could show them, you know, what it would look like on any given showroom floor. You know, and we could also talk about how every other aspect of the market repositioning, not just the product, you know, but the, the promotional aspects with the dealerships you know, would look like we could show them the entire strategy as, as you must do. And to their credit, that very same day in the afternoon, they were going to be taking a look at um, a proposal for a next generation Katera. And um, the audience might remember that the Katera was a, an import from Opel in Germany, rebadged and, and with, with some content changes, but basically the Opel Omega changed into a Cadillac imported from Europe and sold in Cadillac showrooms. An important car to be sure, because that was the, you know, the Katera was addressing the largest luxury segment in the U.S. where Cadillac had no entry. Uh, so it was, a, it was a really good bridge mechanism, but they were talking about extending that bridge later that afternoon on yet another car, which probably which would not look like the art and science cars that we decorated the inside of the design dome with. And they, having presented our strategy in the morning, that afternoon, they basically nixed that next generation imported Opal product and, and gave us the order to, to show them a full-size three-dimensional Katera replacement uh, employing the art and science strategy, which would mean you know, the foreign vocabulary that, that uh, we created for, new, for the new Cadillac, if you will. Uh, and uh, 90 days, by the way, is light speed in, in General Motors parlance. Uh, but to Wayne's credit and design staff credit, uh, they delivered. And they delivered in such a way that the entire strategy word, when they saw that, this beautiful, full-size, three-dimensional car, 90 days later, they broke into spontaneous applause. And that became they, the CTS, that's the CTS, right? Am I correct that, on that? That became the first generation CTS that launched in the fall of 2002. But there was another story that, that's that's big in the front of the book, even before this part of this, and that was your fight to get an SUV, which became the Escalade. Right. Well, I so... I would say in 1999, luxury SUVs were kind of a nascent market. Clearly, there were home market models uh, that Mercedes, for example, had that were beginning to find their way into the U.S. market. There obviously was a full-size SUV market mm -hmm. because of the Tahoe and, uh, and uh, Yukon 
had been around for a long time, even at that point. You know, but the market was fragmenting. There was clearly interest among luxury buyers for a luxury appointed SUV. As I mentioned, Mercedes had models from Germany that they could federalize and bring into the market, which they were doing. Uh, Lincoln had just announced the forthcoming new Navigator. And interestingly enough, two years, frankly, before I arrived at Cadillac, even the Cadillac team saw the opportunity and made a proposal for a Cadillac SUV, which was at that time turned down. In fact, the year before I got to Cadillac in early 1997, there was a, a large study inside of General Motors called Brandscape. And it was, in a way, it was, it was I suppose, trying to refresh on Sloan's original strategy of a car for every person purpose. You know, because it was, I think over time, uh, as the market shrunk, GM hung on to all the various divisional brands and there was proliferation of models within each of the divisional brands to keep the various dealer organizations afloat. A fair amount of overlap crept in as between Chevy, Pontiac, Buick, Oldsmobile, GMC, and Cadillac. Uh, not so much Cadillac and, and all those other brands, but certainly in those other, the, the big brands like Chevy, Oldsmobile, Pontiac, and Buick, a lot of overlap. And we frankly weren't getting our money's worth. So Brandscape was all about trying to do a better job of, of pulling apart the divisional brands and separating the models, giving them more specific assignments and spending our development dollars and our marketing dollars more profitably. One of the conclusions from Brandscape, again, this took place a year before I got there, was that um, because of the Chevrolet and GMC presence, Cadillac would, would be limited to luxury passenger cars. Well, as I mentioned, you know, Mercedes was going to be bringing in uh, their luxury SUVs. And Lincoln had just announced a new uh, uh, full-size luxury SUV called Navigator. It wasn't at that time in the market, but it was coming. And um, it just, it, it seemed, it certainly seemed to me when I got there that it was pretty unlikely, you know, that somebody interested in a Mercedes or a Lexus or a, a Lincoln luxury full-size SUV was going to go to a Chevrolet store to look at a Tahoe also, or to go to a GMC store and look at a Yukon. It just didn't, shall we say, fit with the image that those, those luxury prospects had in their minds. It, it seemed to me instead, if Cadillac were to offer something, it most certainly would be interested because you know it's a luxury brand and the experience you get in a Cadillac store is, is different and more personal than you might get somewhere else. But when I got there, you know, as a brandscape, they had just, the ink had just dried on brandscape. And I'm saying, look, I think we need a truck and, and says, sorry, we made that decision last year. So I, I was, our dealers were, our, our Cadillac dealers were really disappointed with that. And uh, it was showing up, frankly, in dealer attitude surveys. Cadillac was absolutely in the bottom compared to all brands in the U.S. Wow. It was clearly the most important thing. And I, it was really important, uh, in my view, having talked to dealers early on in my time at Cadillac, hear what's on their mind. The top, on top of their mind, all dealers, was the lack of any sort of luxury SUV. And um, so I just, I couldn't, I didn't defend Brandscape because I didn't believe it myself, but I couldn't be overly encouraging about 
getting a luxury SUV because I didn't see a way necessarily how to get one. And then as luck might have it, I'm not sure it's all luck, but the door was opened on revisiting an SUV for Cadillac by none other than my namesake, Jack Smith. I had known Jack for quite some time. He, I think, was in had a hand in getting me not just to Allison Transmission before Cadillac, but getting me to Cadillac also. And he asked me if I thought Cadillac needed a truck. And I paused for a moment. I told him on the phone, I said, yes, but not everybody between you and me thinks so. And uh, he said, he paused and he said, well, let me take a run at that. And uh, he, he put the question back on the table. He didn't direct that Cadillac get an SUV. He just put, he just asked that the question be reviewed again. So that opened the door in such a way that me and my team, you know, could put together the very best business case we possibly could, uh, you know, for, for a Cadillac. And, and we set about to do that. There was going to, there was all, all manner of internal resistance to it because my boss was totally against the idea and most of his peers on the strategy board were also against it because they had participated in Brandscape the year before, you know, and they thought, look, we made a decision on this. We got to stick to it. So, but still we had the review at the strategy board and uh, Rick Wagner was then in charge. He asked everybody their opinion around the table. And there was a couple of us, you know, that me, me, me obviously, who, who thought we should proceed because we had a really good business case. And it was clearly the market was fragmenting and this was this segment was beginning to grow. And to Rick's credit, he said, okay, look, Jack asked the question. I think I've taken everybody's input here. Let's uh, let's uh, let Ron Zarella, let's you and I go up and brief Jack this afternoon. They left the room. I left the room. I When I left the room, I called my secretary and says, please fax that document you typed up for me this morning to Jack's office. It contained all of my points for a Cadillac SUV. And I just wanted Jack to hear them directly. I, Not that Rick or Ron might have not communicated them faithfully, but it just seemed to me it's just better since Jack asked me the question for him to hear so the, the, the analysis, the, the highlights of the analysis that my team had done. And that later that day, uh, I got a call from Ron Zarella, and it was a, a rather brief call. He, he just said rather simply, you got your truck. And uh, the rest is history, because I think as the world now appreciates cars and crossovers outnumber passenger cars for all brands in just about every market in the world. And uh, the Escalade has become absolutely the top earner uh, for Cadillac and probably the second most profitable vehicle in GM's portfolio today. Honestly, had we not, and, and I, the most important part about this, Tim, is that the Escalade, you know, the car business, if we change positioning for Cadillac to art and science, once we get it sold, it takes about four years from that point forth to get to the first piece of hardware that fully carries those, those values. In, in our case, the, the first generation CTS in the uh, fall of 2002. Well, I, you know, for the next three and a half, four years, yeah, we have to give the Cadillac dealers some other reasons to have hope to keep their facilities current, to invest in their people, their training and the like. And we also needed to help them stay relevant with their existing customer base, many of whom are asking 
for a luxury truck that's got the cat uh, from Cadillac. So, you know, fighting for that Escalade was valuable, not only long-term, but it's short-term shot in the arm for our dealers. And it set a very strong signal to luxury intenders everywhere that something was changing at Cadillac. Uh, and probably the most important signal of that type that we sent, obviously we sent others in the form of the Evoke concept car and our return to Le Mans racing and the introduction of night vision on the DeVille, all of those things take place between the time of, of, of getting the art and science strategy approved and having the, the, the portfolio fully begin to fully reflect those values. With the, See, that, with the, that's uh, the part that I found so fascinating was the, yeah. the glimpse inside. You know, it wasn't like everybody at Cadillac was or at GM was saying, let's go, let's bring back Cadillac. In fact, it struck me that it felt like art and science was meeting a lot of headwinds just from Brandscape. And there were a lot of other interests that people had that they didn't want to, you know, philosophically or other brands or whatever. And so watching that all take place. And and uh, by the way, we're talking with John Smith, uh, former GM exec, about his book, Fin Tales, about the revitalization of Cadillac, in which he was uh, seminally involved. But addressing those internal wars was, was a fascinating glimpse behind the curtain for me. And, you know, you just referenced a couple of things, which I thought were interesting. You've got, you come in, you develop art and science group, but or art and science, the, the, the approach, but you've got right. Brandscape there, which is kind of already existing. And it, it, it kind of has to fly in the face of that. You come out with the idea of something that's going to become the CTS, but in the short term, you, you come out with the Escalade. But then you, you just made reference to something, and I'm curious where they fit in. You made reference to the, the concept cars, like the Evoque and the Image, and right. then the Le Mans racing. How did that all fit into the story exactly? Well, it's like, to be honest, I mean, once we sold a strategy, again, the lead times in the car business are different than diapers, right? I mean, if you want a new diaper formulation, you can probably get there in 90 days just because it's a lot easier to design uh, secure materials and make stuff. You know, in the car business, there's an awful lot of validation that goes yeah. into any new design. And by the way, art and science was all based, uh, was built around a brand new rear wheel drive architecture that did not then exist. Uh, it was only going to work if we were going to move passenger cars from front wheel drive, which we had made as good as we possibly could, credit to the engineering team, but they were always falling short of the rear wheel drive executions from the likes of BMW and Mercedes. So That's uh, a we huge had, shift. That's a huge it, shift. You, that alone. Well, and that, that's where, interestingly enough, that's where most of GM's passenger cars were prior to the first corporate fuel economy standards in 1979. But that's a different story. But we are getting, so we, we're getting, we're getting, putting ourselves in a position to truly compete with the likes of Mercedes and BMW with a brand new uh, rear wheel drive architecture that would be fitted, by the way, with all wheel drive. And not and would carry as many as three different models on it. It's it was it's a big undertaking, and um, as fast as the engineering team can work, it's still four four and a half years away. Though so we have so we we have to do a number of things, you know, to, to keep interest in the Cadillac brand up until the point that they can buy something like a CTS or the follow on SRX, which was our first 
crossover vehicle, courtesy of that new architecture, uh, or the uh, or the Seville replacement, which debuted a year a year or two later in the form of STS. We have to keep everybody's attention. We have to keep awareness of the Cadillac brand high, if not higher. So that's at the very top of the sales funnel. So there, are people, you know, take an interest in Cadillac. Maybe go visit a dealer. You know, maybe buy a car. You know, we we have to do things for a, a long period of time to keep their interest. And then some of the things that I mentioned to Escalade was Escalade was first and foremost of, of those kinds of holding actions, if you will. The Evoke concept card, to be honest, was our way of taking art and science to the public for the first time at the Detroit Motor Show in January of 1999. This was this was the the, the world. Not just a few journalists off the record, but this is the world seeing what Cadillac had in mind with art and science for the first time. And I have to say this, I know I mentioned at the top of the interview, so many, GM is a big and distributed company. A lot of the friction loss, if you will, that we encountered uh, in executing art and science, it was in part accrues to the bigness and the basket weave organizational form that GM had where we had strong functions and strong regions and the car divisions compared to what they were in the mid sixties were almost shells of their former selves. They no longer had any engineering or any manufacturing facilities They're strictly marketing organization. So that they don't really have a place in the basket. So you're, you're really sort of fighting through all of this all of the time, but art and science turned out to be most importantly, a clear, concise, rallying cry for the men and women in the trenches of General Motors who thought who, who who heard it, who saw the level of detail that we discussed earlier about what technologies it meant, what the form bar capital, how the cars would look like. You know, and they were responding to it. And part, sometimes I think, Tim, that it, it was motivating for them because they too were tired of getting their heads handed to them at weekend cocktail parties in their neighborhoods or their clubs. Says, so what's wrong with Cadillac? I mean, I wouldn't be caught dead in one of those. And I think they said, well, I think they felt this is an opportunity for us to show the world how good GM can be because we're going to we're going to bring Cadillac. But I had you know people who would see art and science people and they would just bring us their ideas um, like Herb Fischel in motorsports. I mean, Cadillac was not in motorsports, but Herb came into my office one day and said, hey, you know, part of art and science, I think it'd be perfect if you guys return to Le Mans. And I remember looking at it, I said, what do you mean return? He said, well, in 1950, Cadillac was at Le Mans and, and had a, a great run. And so here, Cadillac's got a French name. You were there 50 years ago. Motor uh, Racing is all about technology. Technology communicates quality. These are characteristics that it seems to me art science is all about for Cadillac again. So, I mean, it, it, that was one thing. You know, I had somebody else after we had after we got the Escalade approved in its second generation, there was a vehicle I think people recognize as the Chevrolet Avalanche. And I had the one of the system program managers in that in that uh, in, in that part of GM's business called me up and said, you know what, we could do a Cadillac version of an Avalanche because we're already in the Escalade and we have all the front end sheet metal. We can do a Cadillac version of an Avalanche for nothing. And here would be another model to add to a Cadillac portfolio and add extra interest into the showroom. So those are like two examples of people 
responding to art and science because it was clear and it was concise and compelling. And they brought forth their own ideas. So honestly, uh, the truck engineering people, guys like Ken Morris, who worked on that first uh, rear-wheel drive architecture for the CTS. I mean, this was, art and science was as much about them and them executing and, and to, doing their part to make Cadillac great. It's a great GM story, you know, because well, they, it shows it shows how good GM could really be. And it showed up, you know, as soon as the CTS started rolling through, I think we were getting critical reviews from the buff books. I mean, critical in the sense of good critical reviews, comparing us favorably with, with Mercedes and BMW. In some cases, more favorably, especially when the V-Series first came out on the CTFs in 2004. They said, wow, this kicks their butt. I think that the, the Le Mans story is particularly cool because, yes, there was precedent for it, but most people don't remember 50 years ago. And and the, the response was sort of like when Jamaica showed up at the bobsled run at the Winter Olympics, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, yeah. people, and, yeah. and how did that work out? I mean, did that achieve the marketing objectives that you had for it? We definitely received our unfair share of unpaid media, you know, because of our um, involvement in Le Mans. And, and to get to Le Mans, by the way, we when I first got to Cadillac, it was involved promotionally in a wide range of activities. Now, we were involved in the America's Club. We were involved in bull riding, uh, lots of smaller sports, a lot of golf both uh, on the women's and men's professional circuits, really? sponsoring a lot of tournaments. But with art and science, we, we knew we needed to, shall we say, better tailor our promotional involvements. Uh, and the outcome we felt coming from um, returning to Le Mans, you know, um, getting involved in motorsports, getting involved in something that was less about lifestyle and more about uh, communicating technical and quality related values, technology and quality related values that was more valuable to, to people's understanding of art and science and, and regaining their appreciation for Cadillac as a brand worthy of their consideration. That was more valuable than being in America's Cup yacht racing yeah. or in bull riding. The audiences were, were more suited. The audiences were more suited to ultimately the purchase of our products than was true uh, in some of the other. So we, as part of all the, the repositioning of brand is looking at the entire marketing mix. People call it classically the four P's, product, price, promotion, and place. You know, and art and science was addressed itself to everything that people saw and felt coming from Cadillac, whether it was the dealer showroom, the physical products, right down to the choice of colors in the catalogs and, and, and certainly our choice of promotions, where we showed up, what eyeballs we attracted. And getting into Le Mans racing was all about better focusing you know, our attempts at increasing positive consideration for Cadillac. Well, I know there's even uh, uh, there's even a part where you talk about all the attention and thought given to the mark and which parts you're going to uh, right. bring back and which parts you're going to leave out and, and so on. But take us ahead. What transpired? Because you went on to other things in, in 2000. The CTS came out in 2002. It was a terrific car. The Escalade is a piece of history. That's a, a fabulous a success story. But a lot of 
things didn't continue to the point. What did, what did you draw? How did this story end up? I'm not sure there's an end to a story like this. And what, what conclusions <laughs> well, thank- did you draw from this whole exercise? Well, thankfully, thankfully there, there, there is no end in sight, you know, for the Cadillac story. If there was, it probably would be a good end. Uh, any ending uh, of, for a car brand is not good. So I'd say through t- maybe even 2007, the Cadillac brand had fully was had been fully installed, I should say, in Cadillac's portfolio. I mean, all products were carrying the the, the visual and technical values that art and science uh, had embraced. So and so Cadillac had a, a really good run. We went from. I think the year before I got there in 1996 was probably the lowest non-strike year of Cadillac volumes ever. And you know, by 2005 or 2006, I'm doing this from memory now, you know, Cadillac's volumes had improved by 50%. You know, its demographics, I think, uh, most importantly, uh, had improved quite a bit. We were getting younger, wealthier, better educated consumers. Uh, and, you know, consideration rates uh, for the brand generally we're on the rise, and not unimportantly, I think the f- franchise values for Cadillac dealers were also rising. So, I mean, it was a very, it was a healthy brand again, but the market was continuing to change. Uh, we're beginning to see, for if we, almost if we think about the car market in terms of sizes, as opposed to differentiating between cars and trucks, we're beginning to see crossovers overtake passenger car volumes in almost every size you can imagine. And Cadillac was a little slow um, uh, in its portfolio um, to, 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 uh, to bring in, shall we say, a, a wider fleet of crossovers. Um, uh, th- that's been fixed in more recent years, but I suppose at the time that they might have begun to fix them, we were, we were finding ourselves entering late 07, 08. And of course, 08, 09 was a very difficult time, not just for the automobile industry, but it was a terrible time for the economy, the so-called Great Recession. So in that period of GM's restructuring, and I I can say this from personal experience because I was directly involved, as we were attempting to to restructure out of any sort of bankruptcy proceeding. And we were almost every other week, because at this point I'm running GM's global product planning, Every other week, we're we're trying to further reduce the engineering budget, further reduce the capital budget, to try to create a plan where we can restructure out of court. And then, of course, the decision was made to to, to go through bankrupt bankruptcy. Brands were um, uh, brands were eliminated, which was probably which is certainly a, a good thing for where the company has ended up now. But I think the long and the short of it, you know, Cadillac basically did not enjoy, shall we say, the resourcing it did during the early years of art and science and wasn't able, I think, to keep its portfolio current with the times uh, as it was more fully embracing crossovers across every makes portfolio. And then, to be honest, I think I, I think I observed a fair amount of turnover at the Cadillac leadership ranks. In the 20 years that, uh, since I had been at Cadillac, I think they've had 10 different leaders you know, and, and that's not usually a recipe for success when you have that much turnover at the top because it seems like every new person has new ideas. You know, in the car business, that's not possible. And you know, the lead yeah. times are just too long for that. So 
Now, the good news is when GM had an established position in China with a really good Chinese partner, SAIC, and in time, you know, Cadillac was added to our, our joint Chinese portfolio. And, and as a result, I think starting in 2017 or so, the volumes that Cadillac was generating in China added to its, albeit smaller, uh, its declining volumes in the U.S., still made record volumes for Cadillac in its history. And they every up until COVID, I think Cadillac's global volumes set records year after year. It's, it's not a happy circumstance that in its home market, the U.S., you know, the Cadillac has kind of fallen back, had fallen back to where it was at the time that I got there back in 1997. But I am optimistic that is going to change, Tim, because I think. Cadillac enjoys the full support of, of, of the very top executives at GM, Mary Barra, Kettering grad, I might know, and also Mark Royce. It's almost, and for good reason, Cadillac is the very best that GM could be. So it's important that it be really, really good. So I think Cadillac now enjoys her full support. Uh, and they're rolling out an all-electric portfolio between now and I think, and I hope I have this right, no later than 2035, maybe it's 2030. And they're, they've debuted, they're the first of model of this all-electric portfolio right now in the form of the Cadillac Lyric, and it's already sold out. I'm really optimistic. Look, at, let's put it this way. I don't think you can be, I don't think you can be uh, considered a, a great brand globally unless you're at or very near the top in your home market. And I I'm optimistic Cadillac is finding its way back to being on top in the U.S. market or close to the top, which would be um, a great result. It's in the game by a long shot. I mean, it's very, very much a player, particularly in China, as you pointed out. The Escalade is, is terrific. I mean, there's just a lot going on. And had that not all happened, had the story you recounted in Fintails, uh, not happened, we could have been talking about an Edsel story instead of this story, it seems to me. <laughs> well, I wouldn't but, be able to write that one, but uh, <laughs> I do think you're right. Look, I, I do think art and science, sure Cadillac would be around today without art and science. And I give credit to a lot of men and women in the trenches at GM, you know, for embracing art and science and doing their best work because it, for a while, it, it did, it truly did rescue the brand. And it's around today because of it. Well, John, give me again the particulars, the the name, where we can get the book and uh, where it's benefiting as well. One more time. Yeah, happy to do that. So uh, Fintails is available now. Actually, the title is Fintails, Saving Cadillac, America's Luxury Islands Icon. But you can simply Google Fintails, F-I-N-T-A-L-E-S, on Amazon, and it'll present in either hardcover or in Kindle ebook form. And all proceeds from the sale of Fintails, no matter the format, are going to go to a Haiti themed nonprofit, 501c3 called Jeremy Rising, which uh, supports ongoing relief work in and around Jeremy Haiti. Uh, when I say ongoing relief work, I'm talking about things like building schools building churches, organizing mobile medical clinics in remote villages, supporting two orphanages and an elder care facility, stuff of that elk. And there is a Jeremy Rising Facebook page that people can visit if they'd like to learn more. 
Well, John Smith, this has been fascinating, as was the book. You are, I will vouch for you as being a good writer because I enjoyed turning the pages. It's a story, and I think one people will enjoy. So thank you for sharing with us your story about the story, writing it and bringing it forward. And thanks for your time today on Horsepower to Hyperloop. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.